namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa putang tamang sankhang namasami So we're continuing with the, the chapter called The Third Exit Point from the Cycle, uh, which is also related to the Third Noble Truth, the um, ending of Dukkha and Dukkha Nirodha. And the next section here is called The Fuel for Proliferation. The Buddha spoke of three qualities that feed a fuel for the process of papancha, conceptual proliferation. And it's also the case that papancha feeds these three qualities. They are like a bad behavior club. These three qualities are craving, conceit, and opinions and views, tanha, mana, and ditti. They're also qualities that relate to self-view. They're called the, the papancha dhammas, is the official term for those. The first quality, craving, tanha, is related to the possessive self, the self that seems to do the owning of anything. It's related to the attitude described by the Buddha in the, dis the discourse on not-self, which we chanted this morning, the Anathalakana Sutta. When analysing the mind's creations of self-view, etang mama, this is mine. The second quality, conceit, mana, is the I feeling. You can call it the being self or the ego self, the agent self. This refers to the attitude that I do, I feel, I remember, I am. It's related to the attitude described in the same discourse as eso hamasmi, I am this. And the third, opinions or ditti, views, is about our narrative, our views about who and what we are. When someone asks, who are you? It's what we say about ourselves. I'm a monk, I'm a mother, I'm a school teacher, I'm retired, I'm British, I'm French, American, Thai. I'm 64, 17, 95, and so forth. It's related to the attitude in the same discourse of eso me ata, this is myself. Also, classically, that third one that can relate to sort of the philosophical opinions about how we assume the world is put together, or the the way that the the um, sort of the the map of uh, of, uh, sort of cos uh, the cosmos is put together, like your sort of views and opinions about how the world works. But uh, in, in I think in in all practical senses that this is um, uh, these three cover a lot of those. Uh, those feelings of how, how we, we, uh, we, what we mean when we say I or me or mine, and that these are different dimensions. So it's right there in the, the Anatta Lakna Sutta we chanted this morning, the Etang Mama Eso Hamasmi Eso Meyata. So that when the Buddha's going through uh, the, the analysis of that experience of, of mind and body with his, his five companions um, there in the deer park in Varanasi, then he's saying, is it 
uh, is it appropriate to say that if the body is in a state of change, if the, if it's a something that is subject to affliction, then is it appropriate to say if something which is, uh, uh, say, is transient, is changing, is not permanently satisfactory, is it appropriate to say of this, this is, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself? Uh, and that the, um, as I, I, uh, I think uh, I talk about in here, um, the part of that is based on the, the the background assumption within the Buddhist time that the Atta or the Atman in Sanskrit, Atta in Pali, that has intrinsic qualities of of stability, of permanence, uh, and of blissfulness, and of the quality of, of absolute being. So that what they call in in Sanskrit uh, Sat Ananda, being consciousness bliss. So those are the the assumed characteristics of a, of a self, of the Atman, of um, of the the real self, but the Buddha's um, then pointing to well these things that we think of as being ourselves this the, this personality this body this uh, the the things that we think of as I and me and mine so going through them one by one with rupa vedna sanya sankara vijnana the material form feel sensations feelings um, perceptions uh, mental formations ideas thoughts emotions memories imagination. And discriminative consciousness itself, kind of analyzing one by one. Okay, each of these, since they're they're each in a state of change and they each uh, cannot bring permanent satisfaction, then is it appropriate to say of the material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, etang mama eso me eso me atha. So that is you know uh, a, a very sort of helpful little synopsis of the, the way the mind creates those feelings of I and mine and takes them to be absolute realities. And in that teaching, the, the Buddha's pointing right at that and saying, look, if you dismantle this, if you, if you deconstruct this a bit, then you can, it, it's possible to see how the, um, that which is real can't be based around uh, the, the body or feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So by a process of elimination, by... Uh, the, the things that the mind habitually identifies with, it's, he's sort of leading the, his, his friends to the realization that that which the mind habitually identifies with as being who and what I am, that can't be anything absolutely real there. Uh, so, is that uh, for, makes sense? Please say, if it's, these readings are for you, it's not just for me to be kind of filling the air with noise. But... Uh, if that's not clear, please uh, do speak up. Very good. So these three papancha dhammas work together to feed conceptual proliferation. And conceptual proliferation feeds these three kinds of self-view. It's likely that we've all experienced this in our lives and in our practice as we watched our minds drifting off in different areas of imagination and self-creation, over uh, over the years, now, I thought I would share with you the um, uh, f- the most um, sort of thorough and helpful um, s- scriptural teaching about papancha, uh, conceptual proliferation, and probably a number of you are familiar with this. So this is the um, the sutta called the Madhu Pindaka. Madhu is honey. Pindaka means a ball or a lump, so it's called the, the honey ball sutta, or the sweet morsel. And this um, is sutta number 18 in the middle-length discourses. 
And it starts off with, with the Buddha sitting in the forest, and um, this uh, um, uh, an, a Brahmin, uh, Dandapani, uh, fr- uh, who's a Sakyan, uh, who um, saw the Buddha sitting there, and uh, it seems like he was a professional debater, you know, kind of person who um, is a sort of philosopher and debater, and so he saw the Buddha and thought, okay, I'll see what this monk's philosophy is, and I'll, so I'll test him out and see... Uh, see how good he is at um, at uh, sort of defending, taking a position and defending it. So uh, he went up to the Buddha and said, "What does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim?" And the Buddha, seeing where Dandapani was coming from, uh, realized this bloke's looking for an argument. So uh, realizing that he was not going to, uh, he didn't have to to join in with that that uh, um, energy or that uh, sort of. Uh, uh, what was being put forth, uh, he said, Friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, Maras and Brahmas in this generation, with its recluses and Brahmins, its princes and people. Such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that Brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures, without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. When this was said, Dandapani the Sakyan shook his head, wagged his tongue, raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered into three lines. Then he departed, leaning on his stick. So, uh, no entry point, nothing to say. Couldn't come up with a... uh, The Buddha saying, I teach a philosophy that espouses non-contention. So we had no, no entry point for an argument, for contention, so Dandapani took off. So then the Buddha went back to the monastery, and uh, recounted this incident to some of the Sangha members that were gathered there. And then um, he, uh, one of the interesting things he said uh, uh, after having repeated that dialogue, he said, Bhikkhus, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to views, of the underlying tendency to doubt, of the underlying tendency to conceit, of the underlying tendency to desire for being, of the underlying tendency to ignorance. So those are called the the seven anusaya, or the underlying tendencies. And then he says, This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Then having said that, then uh, the Buddha got up and uh, went into his kuti and left the Sangha members like, oh, what did he mean by that? So then uh, they went to seek out Mahakachana, who was one of the great arahants and was famous for being one who could explain in detail statements made by the Buddha in brief or cryptic statements. And so... He was the one that when they said, what did he mean by that? Then he was the go-to person for that uh, that kind of exposition. So then it's actually Mahakachana, Venerable Mahakachana, who spells out this the essential aspect of this teaching, first of all. Uh, so they, they go to him and then they ask um, Venerable Mahakachana. He said, friends, uh, you, know, the, you know, really you should be asking the Blessed One rather than asking me, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, since you have come and asked me, then I will uh, explain how this thing works and why it is that it's through that uh, grasping and the, the conceptual proliferation um, 
that that process that leads to quarrels and disputes and uh, conflict in the world. So then he explains, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. So the eye uh, and then visual forms, the light that comes from that, then when the eye and the light meet, then eye consciousness arises. So that the electrical impulse going down the optic nerve then reaches the brain. So those three is uh, to coming together is called pasa, contact. With contact as a condition, there is feeling, vedana. What one feels, that one perceives, sanya. What one perceives, that one thinks about, svitaka. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates, that's papancha. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, Perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future and present forms cognizable through the eye. And the Pali for that is Papancha Sanya Sankha. So uh, that's the, the, the description of that process. And then he says, with the ear and sounds, on the nose and odors, the tongue and flavors, on the body and tangibles, dependent on the mind and mind objects in exactly the, the, the same way. Uh, so then, uh, uh, when he uh, he sort of goes through all of that uh, and explains it uh, to to people, and they uh, uh, they're very impressed and, uh, and sort of inspired by that. And uh, when he says, when there is um, no eye, no form, no eye consciousness, it's impossible to point out the manifestation of contact. And so when there's that uh, you know, a letting go of identification with that whole process. Um, and then uh, the, the mind doesn't get caught up in those kinds of proliferations. And so um, he said, okay, I've explained it in this way, and uh, so it would be a good idea for you to uh, to go and check this with uh, the, the Buddha. And so uh, Venerable Ananda went to the Buddha, and then um, he said uh, 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 that... Uh, uh, this is how uh, Mahakachana had explained it, and the, the Buddha responded to Venerable Ananda, um, Mahakachana is wise because Mahakachana has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in the same way that Mahakachana has explained it. Such is the meaning of this, and so you should remember it. When this was said, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, just as if a man exhausted by hunger and weakness came upon a honey bowl, uh, Madhu Pindaka, in the course of eating it, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. So too, Venerable Sir, any able-minded bhikkhu in the course of scrutinizing with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma would find satisfaction and confidence of mind. Venerable Sir, what is the name of this discourse on the Dhamma? As to that, Ananda, you may remember this discourse on the Dhamma as the honeyball discourse. So it was known as that for the last two and a half thousand years. So, from that description that Ananda gave, so the Madhu Pindika Sutta. So that describes the, the process of proliferation. So there's a sense contact, we hear something, we think something, we see something, and there's the, the coming together of, say, sound on the ear and then ear consciousness, or, or the, 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 the tongue and a, and a, a taste uh, arises. And then there is the, the sanya that registers in, uh, in the, the... Well, there's the contact, first of all, pasa, and then there is the feeling, so there's the, the sense of, of liking, disliking, or neutral feeling. And that's there even before 
the sense perception has clearly formed. So it's in a way, it's, it matches the the neuroscience of perception as uh, that. The, the instinctual, like, oh, this is good, move towards it, or this is bad, get away from it. That's there before you've even recognized, oh, uh, that's, the, uh, that, that's a bad smell, or, or this tastes good. Um, so that it's, it matches the kind of, uh, the, the deeply rooted instinctual processes of the sensory system. And so when it says sanya, it's like the mind say, oh, that's blue, it, it, even before the words register, that, that's blue, there's the, the the mind perceiving the the color and knowing oh, it's that color it's blue or it's red or it's brown um, and then the vitaka is that naming that it says the word blue or brown or or, or red and so that there is uh, that it ha- is a process that happens very quickly uh, and then that in itself is still fairly simple just the per- the perceiving and the naming this is blue this is red this is sweet this is this is sour. And then the papancha kicks in, is then the associative thinking. Uh, I, I like that blue when they build a new sala. What, what, what color is the carpet going to be when they make the new sala? Are they going to have a carpet in the new sala? I need to make a, an appeal. <laughs> you know, off the mind goes into some kind of um, uh, associative train of thought. And then the, the last one in that link, the um, uh, papan, uh, papancha sanya sankara, which is uh, the... Um, uh, the perceptions and notions tinged with me- m- uh, mental proliferation that beset the the heart. So that's a, uh, an e- uh, an easy way of figuring that is that the sense of me existing in relationship to the world and, and a quality of tension between them, like me irritated by something that's uncomfortable, me afraid of something that's that's intimidating, me attracted to something I want to get hold of. But it's that the mind is caught in that. Sort of me in a, in a in a tense relationship with a, the world outside, with the, the sensory field. So, if you want to look that up and follow that through in more detail, there's um, both this sutta, um, uh, sutta number eighteen in the Majima. There's also a wonderful book by the um, the bhikkhu uh, uh, um, called uh, Venerable Nyanananda, uh, called Concept and Reality. Uh, which is published by Buddhist Publication Society, Concept and Reality. And it goes into that whole conceptual proliferation process uh, and, the, and there's a kind of commentary on that sutta and other related suttas. So I do recommend that. Uh, uh, and and he's, a, he's a very good writer. He writes very, very, very clearly and it's a very uh, reliable source of wisdom. So if you're interested in digging into that more deeply, then... Concept and Reality by Bhikkhu, uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Nyanananda is a good resource. So, any questions, thoughts on all of that? Anyone never experienced conceptual proliferation? <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> I'll be very impressed if someone put their hand up. <laughs> yeah, it's a familiar territory for, for everyone. That's how the, the, the human mind uh, operates so easily. And it's um, and part of the, the purpose of, of including it in this chapter is how when that process is recognized, and you don't have to remember all the Pali words straight away, but just getting to know how that that process of distraction, and, and the, the English word distraction literally means pulled apart. It's like the Latin tract, like a tractor, it's like pulled. So distracted is, and distraction is pulled apart. So how the, the attention, the mind gets pulled apart 
getting to know how that process works. And then the more familiar that that is, then the, the more easily the mind can can notice sense objects and not be automatically pulled in by them and not create those those complications. It's also the the word papancha in in, uh, in also in in Indian languages. It has the uh, along with proliferation. It's also got the 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 kind of meanings of, of tangled or knotted or distorted. That, that's uh, those kind of elements uh, in there as well. Um, so it's 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 not just complicated. It's also tangled, <laughs> knotted, kind of, uh, and uh, sort of uh, that sense of uh, attention is there in it as well. But this reminds me of a story I once heard about Ajahn Lee. Ajahn Lee was the teacher of Ajahn Tanisaro's teacher, Ajahn Fuang. So Ajahn Lee was also one of the, the uh, he was a student of uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, and one of the interesting uh, you know, uh, say books out of the forest tradition is Ajahn Lee's uh, autobiography. He was one of the rare that they, he wrote his own life story. He died when he was fairly young, um, I think in his early 60s, and uh, it's uh, his monastery in in, Th- in central Thailand is called Wat Asokaram, and uh, the one of the the reasons why he was um, reputedly had a short lifespan was because he was the emperor Asoka in a previous lifetime who was responsible for a lot of bloodshed, and so he had these um, memories of his past life experiences, and so he gave the mon- Asoka means without sorrow. But the actual Emperor Ahsoka rose to power by murdering apparently 99 brothers and then conquering most of India before faith arose in him and he he became a spiritual practitioner and a great um, disciple of the the Buddha's teaching, promoter of of the Buddha Sasana. But uh, he had a very bloody history before that. So it said that uh, Ajahn Lee had a a short lifespan on account of the the resonances of of that previous... um, previous birth experience. Whether that's actually the case or not, I can't say from direct experience, but that's the, the story and why what Asokaram has the, the name that it does. So anyway, this is a uh, as a, a, uh, a retelling of one of the stories he recounts from his own life as a, as a young monk. I think he was about four or five reigns at this time. He was a newly, fairly newly, newly ordained bhikkhu when this incident happened. When Ajahn Lee had been a monk for about four years, he was sitting in his kuti, listening to the rain falling on the roof. This thought came to his mind. How much longer will the rainy season last? It must be about another month. Then he thought, when this rainy season comes to an end, this will be my fifth rains. That means I'm officially a trained monk. Kind of according to the, uh, the Vinaya, after five years, you go from being a, a Navaka or a new monk to a Majima, a, a middle, middle-aged monk, in, in terms of monastic years. So it became a, a Majima, and so that you are uh, technically allowed to leave the uh, uh, being in dependence on a teacher. If the, if the teacher thinks that you're ready, then you're, you don't have to live as a sort of apprentice, uh, but you are ready to sort of live under your own auspices. So uh, in, in this era, um, if someone was doing a temporary ordination, then it was quite common for a man to, to do five reigns and then leave the monastery and go back to lay life. It's trimmed down to about a week nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so five years, three years, one year, six months, one last, one reign, three months reigns retreat, you know, one month, two weeks. I'm not 
it's not always just a week, but it's, it's, it has been getting less and less as years have gone by. Oh, when this rains retreat comes to an end, this will be my fifth rains. That means I'm an officially trained monk. So, if I finish my apprenticeship, what do I want to do with myself? I could go wandering, or maybe I could go back and visit my home village. Actually, come to think of it, if I finished five years, that's the end of my monastic commitment. If I wanted to, I could go back to lay life, and it would be no disgrace at all. I wonder why I've not thought about that. That's quite an interesting idea, come to think of it. I could go back to the village and see my friend Som. And there's that younger sister of his. She told me that I might be marriageable once I'd been a monk for a few years. I thought she was just teasing me, but maybe she was giving me a message. Soon Ajahn Lee had created a detailed life story that involved marriage, children, and a job at a match factory. <laughs> for, for, you know, for match making matches and matchboxes. And then he imagined the match factory going up in flames and his livelihood gone and his wife and children leaving him, his life descending into utter, utter ruin. If only he had stayed a monk. But then he realized he was still a monk. <laughs> uh, and he was mightily relieved. All that, was, all that was triggered by the sound of the rain on the roof. <laughs> so particularly if you're in solitary retreat, the, the papancha strings can get really... <laughs> Elaborate. You haven't got any sort of signals around you to to, to break up the story. You can you can really get. Um, but yeah, it's it's very. He, he describes it very in a very funny way. He's sort of imagining this terrible disaster of the factory burning down and everything is sort of ruined. And then what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then realizing, oh, yeah, if only I'd stayed a monk. And then realize, oh right, it's all, it was all okay. You know, like it was just a dream and. Uh, so he's mightily relieved when he realizes that it was just uh, the papancha process uh, born from the, the sound of the rain on the roof. There is a sense organ, the ear. There is sound. Ear consciousness arises on the basis of the sound hitting the ear. This is sense contact, pasa. Sense contact gives rise to feeling, medana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensation. That feeling conditions perception, sanya, the mental formation of the actual sense object, the sound of, of rain. The brain registers that as a particular sound. The nerve, impulses, the nerve impulse goes down the auditory nerve and hits the auditory center of the brain. The brain lights up with that particular sense impression. This triggers conceptual thought, vitaka, which conditions conceptual proliferation, papancha. Conceptual proliferation brings forth the many and various mental creations that arise on the basis of papancha and create the feeling of alienation and oppression. Papancha sanya sankara. There is the feeling of me in a state of tension with a very distinct world. That could be me wanting something I haven't got, me protecting something that I have got, or me being attacked by something I'm afraid of. It could be contention, arguing against something I don't like, having lots of opinions about everything. Those same qualities that lead to conceptual proliferation, craving, conceit, and opinions and views, create more fuel that continue the papancha process. So that, uh, that the, the more there is the I, me, and mine feeling woven into that, then the more that the, the mind gets drawn into those creations, the less there is a sense of I, and me, and mine, then the easier it is to know, oh, this is just sound, this is just the rain, there isn't the, that... 
that fuel for proliferation, that it, that the attention stays much more easily and steadily with the, the sense impressions and, and thereby doesn't lead the mind into complication and alienation. One of the most helpful and skillful ways of working with this is to follow the train of thought back to its origin, from the match factory and the ruined life back to the raw sound of the rain on the roof. Oh, it just began with hearing, that's all. As you get closer and closer to the root, there is less of a feeling of I and mine. There's simply hearing, or seeing, or thinking, or remembering. There's no strong sense of I, me, mine involved. In this way, the realm of feeling and perception can be seen to be, in their essence, extremely simple. It is uncomplicated. Uh, and the Venerable Sariputta gave a helpful two-word teaching which, summed, which sums this up. Apapanchang papancheti. Literally, one is complicating that which is not to be complicated. So if you want to look that up, that's in the, uh, the numerical discourses in the Book of the Fours. Apapanchang papancheti. We actually used that on a greetings card here a couple of years ago. That was the, the kind of Amravati slogan. Don't complicate the uncomplicated. So Christmas greeting. Apapanchang <laughs> <laughs> papancheti. Uh, one is complicating that which is not to be complicated. Wouldn't it be less complicated in English? Hmm? <laughs> Don't complicate the uncomplicated. Is that too complicated? In, in English it's fine, in Pali it's a bit complicated for me. <laughs> well, uh, that's a challenge to re reframe it. Apapanchang papancheti. More simply put, don't complicate the uncomplicated. Our minds love to create complexity, complication. But if we want to find peace and freedom, then the less complicated, the better. One of the attributes of the Buddha was Nipapancha, one who is free of complication. Even though he had an amazing intelligence and imagination, his mind, as a direct experience, was supremely uncomplicated. Any thoughts, reflections? We're very quiet this evening. Nipa Pancha. But I actually gave that name to a, <laughs> a particular novice a few years ago. Nipa Pancho. And, uh, as an aspiration for the venerable one. <laughs> Because his mind was tended towards complications, so I thought it was a good, uh, a good supportive reminder for him. Sometimes names are given that match your character, your your nature, and sometimes they're given to something to aspire towards. So that was an aspirational name. I've got one. Yes. So is it possible to have potential without my making and my self-making, or is it always connected? Uh, usually, I mean that's what, why the, those qualities are called the papancha dhammas. They kind of they they it's it's possible, but it's um, uh, uh, it has much less strength. Um, the uh, and and the the more that there's I and me and mine involved, then the, the further it's going to run, the more tangled it's going to be. But strings of associative thought. They can, you know, they can they can drift along, like if you're a bit sleepy, um, and uh, the, you know, the mind isn't very alert. You can just sort of roll along in an aimless in an aimless way. But it's but the the 
so that's I would say a distracted thought. But papancha, you know, it's uh, you know the, the word itself refers to that um, sort of self-based uh, kind of ongoing strings of, of associated thinking. So just just a distracted thought. The um, uh, vitaka itself can sometimes just mean. And not just a conceptual thought, but the quality of, of just mental chatter. Um, but the papancha is almost always that driven by the I, me, and mine feelings, and that's what um, it's like the the way the mind gets lost in in its own uh, creations, its own stories, its own, and the stories are usually about well, not just necessarily about ourselves. It can be solidly about someone else, you know, <laughs> them, you know, that you're you're irritated by or afraid of or excited about or you have opinions about. Um, so when there's a particularly um, uh, difficult political figure, then uh, so that when I was in the, the early years I was teaching in the States, George W. Bush was the, pro- was the president. And so as an exercise, uh, and he was known as W, was his nickname. George, his dad was George Bush Senior. He was also a president, but so the junior was called W, as in a pronunciation of the of the letter W. So, as an ex, sort of a, as a papancha investigation exercise, I used to say to people, "Okay, just just think the letter W, and then watch what the mind does." As this is a kind of because he was such a contentious figure. People forget now he's a fairly benign character in the. In the in the American political sphere, but at the time he was very hot topic and very uh, amongst the, the liberal, <laughs> sort of countercultural liberal lefty types, he was much uh, much a uh, much fuel for proliferation around George W. Bush because he also you know he was um, he was uh, um, say. Uh, in charge of, uh, of uh, in the states and uh, in, uh, in very contentious times and uh, responsible for America, you know, carrying out various wars and such like. So that uh, so it doesn't have to be around your own life or your own, but it can be about another. But it's the the um, so when it says it's based around I and me and mine, it's, it can be you know that person <laughs> and then. Solidly built around the, you know the other, but uh, I would say that still relates to those habits of, of sort of identity creation. It's just the identity is the other that's being inflated, and, and the mind is making much of and getting into a tangle over. That makes sense. But particularly if we're if we're feeling sleepy or the like a like a sort of the mind can get into dreamlike states where just sort of one random image just follows them on to another, to another, to another, to another. There isn't a lot of conscious feeling of I and mine in it. It's just like one image triggering another. So I would say that's more sort of distracted thought, but it doesn't have that sort of tension or or, or heated, tangled quality that papancha and then papancha sanya sankar, that kind of sense of alienation and tension that comes from that. Okay, so the next section is called Mindfulness of Awkward Feeling. 
Another of the ways of working with emotion and cessation is with respect to feeling socially uncomfortable. I call this mindfulness of awkward feeling. So again, this is not a classical theme of Buddhist philosophy. <laughs> Particularly, I mean, it's just something that you know, I've noticed uh, in my own mind and is something that is uh, sort of comes up uh, in, in terms of uh, Dharma practice for people. So this isn't a sort of classical theme. You won't find this in the... If you look up in the index of the Majjhima Nikaya, you know, mindfulness of awkward feeling isn't a standard theme, but uh, I feel it's helpful to look at. Now I call this mindfulness of awkward feeling. This can be a very profound practice. This is the, quote, oh dear, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen and it just happened feeling. The, here's this person, they're really upset with me and I don't know what to say in order to make them feel okay feeling. And other related. <laughs> uh, there's kind of, oh, what do I do with this? Yeah, all that sense of awkward feeling. Uh, even though anxiety and worry have not been a big issue for me for a long time, I still often have that sense of, oh dear, what am I going to do with this one? Or, hmm, this is really a puzzle. And I find that the mind is hunting for a way to solve the issue, to come up with an answer, to figure out what's the, quote, right, unquote, thing to do. In this process, the mind is always trying to get away from that awkward feeling, the sense of a, a question that's lacking an answer. Like there's a there's a, a puzzle or a, a question. It's a, you're, you're feeling like there's a a question that hasn't got its answer or a crossword clue that needs to be solved. Like this thing's incomplete, and so there's a habitual hunting for completion or something that's going to answer the question or fill in the fill in the blanks or solve the Sudoku puzzle. Ah, it's that number. That's what it. That's how you complete it. So it's that kind of hungering for some sort of um, uh, answer to, uh, to to get away from that feeling of, of incompleteness or, or or not being sure what to say or what to do or how to handle a, a particular situation. Like when someone says, oh, the Ajahn wants to talk to you. <gasps> I mean, you might feel, oh, great. You know, there might be that, oh, what's that about? You know, that, so that, that sort of uh, that kind of uncertainty uh, feeling. In exactly the same way as when there's an emotional reaction, a greed or fear or anger, you can catch it and spell it out. Mindfulness of awkward feeling, quote-unquote, is the ability to catch what the mind is adding on to that moment. Say, this is the, here's this person, they're really upset with me and I don't know what to say in order to make them feel okay, feeling. As a line and a half, all hyphenated. <laughs> Rather than getting drawn into the content of the dialogue, you're looking at how you're experiencing it. So, once again, it's not being drawn into the situation, the content of that feeling, but like a 180 degree turn, say, oh, this is what that feeling is. This is that, uh, oh, here's a, a, a crossword clue and I don't know what the answer is. Here's a question, an ambulatory a mobile question that's looking for an answer. That's what this feeling is. So it's turning that attention, like, oh, trying to find completeness over there, to turn back and say, oh, this is that incomplete, awkward feeling. That's what's happening here. And and by turning the attention back onto what the feeling is, you realize even though it's saying there's something missing, that feeling of there's something missing is in itself complete. It arises and says there's something missing. And it passes away. 
like any kind of a, a doubt. It, it presents itself as something incomplete or something that's, that's lacking, but it's that, oh, here is the feeling of something's missing, or here is the feeling of, I, oh, I'd like to know what to do. That feeling of, I'd like to know what to do, arises and then passes away. It, like any other feeling, it has to be impermanent. So it's telling you that the, the message, the content is saying there's something missing, but in actuality there isn't something missing, it's just a question arising and passing away. Like if you look at a crossword and you think, oh dear, what's three across? I don't know. If you put the crossword down and ignore it, there isn't a missing word anymore because you're not interested in the crossword. <laughs> it was only missing because you put attention onto it and said, I want to know what that, that answer is. And so you've made it into something that's incomplete. But in itself, it's just a feeling that's because you put attention onto that. I don't know if that's a good example or not. But you know, you've given it life and value by the attention that you put onto it. I need to know what to do with this person or this contact, or uh, I want to uh, to not feel this this awkward feeling. Um, but because of the attention being absorbed in the content, we don't recognize in this moment. It's just a feeling that has arisen, and here it is. It's like this. So that turning the attention around 180 degrees to say, oh, this is that awkward feeling of, oh, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. Uh, and that that in itself is, is there's nothing missing there. It's, a, it's a, another mental formation that arises, does its thing, and fades away like any other mental formation. It is particularly interesting that, even though there might be a demand for you to make a response very quickly, even as the person is talking, or even as you're talking, you can divide your attention and steer some of it back and reflect, this is an awkward feeling. This is the, oh dear, what on earth do I do about this one feeling. I use this practice virtually on a daily basis. For your information. <laughs> I still do. I use this practice virtually on a daily basis, often several times a day. Uh, I've, actually, during the pandemic, it's not quite so much because I'm by myself most of the time. <laughs> in ordinary life at Amravati, where I'm in contact with lots of people uh, through much of the day, and then it's uh, it's more more common. It has been more common, but um, it's still a, a, a extremely helpful and practical um, method or approach to to use. I find it extraordinarily helpful because it doesn't mean that you're switching off or you're ignoring the other person or the situation. Rather, you're simply not being drawn into your own self-centered reactivity, trying to get away from that uncomfortable feeling. But instead, you're recognizing that it's a mildly achy emotional feeling, no more than a physical ache would be. I feel whole books could be written, could helpfully be written about mindfulness or awkward feeling. It could save us a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of effort, because we put a huge amount of energy in our lives to get away from the discomfort of oh dear, what am I supposed to do with this, quote-unquote. We find all kinds of ways of covering that up, getting away from it, smoothing it over, and we don't have to. Instead, we can say to ourselves, this is, the, this, is this is the exactly what I didn't want to happen, and it's just happened, feeling. Uh-huh, that's what this is. And in a mysterious way, when you recognize that tensing in the system and relax with that, then there's an untangling, a decluttering of the mind. Sometimes what pops into your mind is, well, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm really not understanding it. Could you try that again? And you realize it's a totally valid thing to say. Or you might say, I usually have an answer for most people's problems, but in this case, I haven't got a clue. 
Uh -huh. And so, to be honest, your guess about how to handle a situation <coughs> is as good as mine. So, let's look at it together. And you find that that tense, difficult thing that you were trying to get away from, you didn't need to be intimidated by or feel threatened. Instead, you can turn it around and work with it. So, again, does that make, make sense? Uh, it might sound a little bit over-analytical over, over or psychological, but uh, it's, uh, it is, I find, extraordinarily helpful um, that, uh, uh, that uh, I, mean, I also recognize, in terms of my own personality, I'm a bit of a compulsive explainer, and so that my, my general response, my conditioned response to you know, a question or a situation is to come up with an answer or a plan. And, um, and so part of what's informed me for this approach over the years is being with people who are much less explanation prone or much more straightforward. Um, and uh, particularly living with Ajahn Pasano in, in California and then also being around um, other, other Sangha members. Uh, Ajahn Viridamo is also particularly, they're both Canadians by, by coincidence, but uh, very, very helpful uh, in this respect. Where someone would ask them a question and Ajahn V would say, I don't know what the answer to that is. Full stop. <laughs> or, or Ajahn Pasano would say, well, I don't know what you mean by that. Um, you know, or, or um, yeah, I'd love to help you, but I haven't got a clue how to solve this. And you realize they care. They're not saying, don't go away and don't bother me. They're saying, I, I care about what you're saying, but I haven't got an answer. And I'd, I'd be around people responding like that. I go, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> you don't have to jump in and fix it or, or come up with the answer that solves everything. So that. Um, uh, being around people who are much more straightforward and ready to not have an answer for everything helped, was a kind of inroad for myself. And to just stay with that feeling of, wow, what do you do with this one? Or, like, or if someone's really upset and you're trying to find, oh, what can I say to make this person feel all right? And, and it, also being around uh, Lumpur Sumedho, um, sometimes when people have had a, had a tragedy in the family, someone close to them has died, then also being being close to to Lumpur and uh, to seeing how he would respond, not trying to cheer them up or or go into a discourse about you know, about you know the, the Buddha's take on death and dying, but a, an extraordinary empathy and not trying to fix them or make everything okay, but just uh, addressing you know this is a horrible feeling and we you don't know where, don't know what to do with it. And you go, yes. <laughs> That's what that's what it's like. So that, uh, in a way, not trying to to fix things, not because you don't care, but not getting pulled into that. I've got to fix this. I've got to have an answer for this. I've got to make this all right, and then everything will be all right. But that sense of oh, if what's there is this is uh, this is tricky, or this is the um, uh, I'd really like to help this person, but I haven't got a clue how to uh, what what to say. To be uh, acknowledging that, to be you know, at, at home with that, to, to receive that. And then the mysterious thing can be that by that sense of not jumping in and trying to fix it and explain, <laughs> analyze, uh, um, there's, there's, more, there's a, a greater spaciousness and a greater quality of genuine empathy. And then you find, um, when you do say things like, uh, I'd really like to help, but I don't know what to say. Or, or that, um, yeah, 
you know, you, you've, uh, uh, I, I can't understand what you're talking about. Um, that that being honest and being true to what's being experienced, that opens things up and you can find a greater, uh, mysteriously, a greater sense of clarity and communication. And then that difficulty that's being expressed or that, that, um, that sense of, of uh, incompleteness then it, it finds a way of, of um, resolving or, or things uh, being being processed when you haven't got that the thinking mind jumping in and filling up the the, the space. So yeah, you know, so it's a sense of not analyzing or trying to fix things or explain things, but you're not turning away, but just in a sense receiving the situation as it is, knowing it as it is, and. Uh, and are you holding it for the from a more sort of complete and and uh, non a kind of non personal or, uh, or non conceptual uh, perspective? So uh, again, I hope that um, doesn't make it sound more complicated, but uh, <laughs> it's not complicated, the uncomplicated. But uh, if uh, uh, if this kind of practice is developed, it it really makes life a lot more spacious and. Uh, uh, is a uh, a far uh, a greatly diminished quality of anxiety and uh, reactivity. Uh, I found as a result of that. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. This was an observation following on from that, and uh, um, when I was fortunate enough to come and live here um, for a while, I. Um, heard for the first time people actually saying, I don't know. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, come from a world where we are expected to know yeah. the answers. And I just found it incredibly liberating um, to be able to say, I don't know. And, and um, yeah, that's one of the things I, I took away from Amravati when I yeah, and this, I feel that's very, very important. Uh, and again, because my my habit is always ever since I was about three years old, I was always wanting to jump in and explain life, the universe, and everything. Even when I didn't have a the information, I would still fake it and pretend that I knew. You know, so I confess. I realize this is being recorded, but it's come. I'm not uh, not shy that the. That was the habit, and just to say I don't know, or I haven't got a, I've got no 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 place to put that, and that can be extremely helpful. Oh, you too, great. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it either. Thank you, thank you. Okay, we're in this together. <sighs> uh, also, one of the, the aspects of it that's, that's kind of interesting is sometimes we can get we can be in a situation that's so sort of tangled, and we're trying to do the right thing, and we're we're sort of overthinking. What what we what what's happening in our life and trying to do the right thing, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to to be a good person, or, or and then coming at the, the the tangles that we have in our, our family or the workplace or the monastery or wherever from this you know this uh, theoretical or conceptual place. And one of the aspects of the practice is to just to let go of that proliferation <laughs> and to to just to let the, there be as much mental space as possible and to simply ask the question, what do I really feel about this? Or what's, what's really the priority here? What, you know, what the, and again, it's tricky to do because the, if, 
especially if you've got a quick mind that is really eager to jump in, but to the extent possible to sort of clear the mental space. If there's a particular issue, like in the struggle in the family or the work life or you know, decisions that, that seem to need to be made and such like, to clear as much mental space as possible and then to, to ask that question, you know, what, what's really important to me? What's the priority here? And, and to, to just drop that into the mental space with a, as little bias as possible. And, um, uh, and it can be quite revealing that for, for many people, they've never actually taken the trouble just to ask themselves that question. So, the mind is so filled with the shoulds and shouldn'ts they've got from their parents or from the society or the, the, you know, the, the, the people around them, the, the, the work, you know, the colleagues and the expectations of people in your field or the, the, the profession or whatever it might be, just to sort of clear it all out and say, well, what do I really care about? <laughs> and what's really important to me? And that uh, when we, we do that, then it can be quite revealing. That, uh, uh, but we can, we can get so, things can get so cluttered. Uh, I remember um, I was leading a, a, a meditation day when I lived in the States. I was leading a meditation day long and talking about this... Uh, this kind of uh, of practice and using uh, reflective inquiry and um, to, to to use these kind of questions and um, uh, and uh, during one of the, the breaks it was that I'd, I'd been giving a guided meditation and people were supposed to be going out and, and doing walking practice for you know, uh, some time and a, a few people came up sort of caught me and caught me at the at the, at the seat and had a few questions. This, this one one person came up and uh, and she said, uh, "Yeah, I've been in this really difficult marriage for thirty years, and I, I'm really not sure. I, I'm from a Hispanic family. We're all Catholics, and so you know, divorce is really forbidden. And you know, but my marriage is really really difficult, and I'm in this real tangle. What, you know, what should I what should I do, Ajahn? <laughs> so so uh, I never make people's decisions for them." And I said, well, you know, using the kind of practice that I've been talking about today, you know, have you ever really asked yourself um, just to, to clear away the, the, all the shoulds and shouldn'ts and expectations and just to, to ask yourself, you know, what's, what's really the priority for me? What, what's most important for me? And I'm just sort of in mid-sentence. She said, got it. <laughs> it was like, I didn't even, literally, I didn't finish my sentence. It was just like... As I was talking, uh, you know, she realized you know, she'd never done that, really. That just, uh, just so filled with, with shoulds and shouldn'ts and coming from all sides. And that, uh, I said, just ask yourself that question. What's really most important to me? What's, 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 uh, what's really the priority here? And I didn't ask her what, she'd, what choice she'd made, but she just sort of lit up. Her whole expression just showed up. Got it. And it was amazing that she she'd been wrestling for this for years and years. I'm not making any claims, but just uh, had never taken the trouble just to ask what's important to me. What what's uh, what is there in the heart, the intuitive sense in the jitta, for what's the uh, what's what's really meaningful, what what really matters here, and uh, it didn't even have to be sort of sitting on a long retreat. It was <laughs> like in the middle of a conversation. There was that kind of intuitive certainty that just popped up for her, anyway. So, 
We can maybe fit in one more section. It's kind of related. Um, this is called Being Misunderstood and or Misrepresented. It's all related to mindfulness of awkward feeling. Another aspect of working with uncomfortable emotions is related to an extremely challenging area. This is how to be misunderstood and misrepresented. When people are saying things about you that are not true, and you think, but, 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 it's not that way. Let me explain. How dare you? That's not fair. Or people tell others what your attitude is, and they've got their facts wrong. Like, I don't know, he thinks such and such. Yeah. Oh, do I? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> it does happen from time to time, for, for many of us. So this is what it means to be misunderstood and misrepresented. If you're in a position of responsibility and you have to be guiding people, which I have to do a fair amount uh, of these days as Abbot of Amravati, this provides many opportunities to be misunderstood and misrepresented. When you're in a position of responsibility in your family, running a hospital or your business or in a university, whatever, whatever it might be, uh, then you're doing a lot of the decision-making and guiding. So there are many opportunities for people to judge your actions and your character. And it's not always praise. Also, it's not kind of, I just use various sort of uh, fairly high profile, uh, uh, I mean, uh, it's not just running companies, it's also driving a bus or, <laughs> or, or a, an Uber, you know, just, or, or working in a restaurant, you know, it doesn't have to be anything particularly um, like a, a sort of high, high profile professional, but the, uh, where, where we're taking responsibility um, for, for actions and, and work and, and relationships. People are not always happy about the things that you do, and they don't always understand your motivation. They might be resentful, they might be angry, they may just not have all the information. But it's very common for us to be misunderstood and misrepresented. Of course, even if you're not in a position of leadership, you can still be misunderstood, misrepresented. Doing the washing up at Amravati, or doing the looking after the recycling you know, the, in the, in very humble areas, uh, we can still be misunderstood, mis misrepresented. My tendency is to want to jump in and try to explain. Oh no no no, it's not like that. Let me tell you, it's spiritually demanding to practice restraint and not to justify yourself like this. If you want to jump in and set everything straight, because then you assume everything will be all right. I was told a little while ago that the Queen of England has two policies. Never complain, never explain. <laughs> if you're the Queen, you can get away with it. Uh, but it's a worthy principle to reflect on, I feel, even if you're not a Queen. Don't complain, don't explain. Because when there's that urge to jump in and make people understand we can overdo it. We can overcompensate as a result of self-defensiveness. I don't want you to see me like that. I want you to see me the way I like to be seen. So let me get in there and make you see things differently. The very energy, the attitude that we bring to it, is filled with self-view and the conceits of I and me and mine. This sort of narcissistic, I want to be seen the way that I want to be seen. I don't want you to see me in any way that I wouldn't like. It's not that we should switch off or be disengaged from situations. Rather, it's to not go along with that compulsive pull, to be driven by self-view, but instead 
to freely allow people to see you in the way that they want to see you. I can't control how you see me. I can talk in certain ways and I can hope that you see me in, in ways I would like to be seen, but I can't control what you experience. It's not within my power. Not even the Buddha or any of the Arahants over the ages could please and inspire everyone. You do your best, but what people make of that is completely up to them. So in the Buddha's own lifetime, he was quite heavily criticized and, and uh, uh, a lot of people complained about him and what he taught and, and how he lived. So that, uh, even someone as, as exalted and pure-hearted as the Buddha managed to irritate and upset people and was seen in, in negative ways. And people had very critical things to say about him and his teaching. So that letting go of, of concern and, sort of the, and worrying about how you, how you appear, uh, so that kind of relinquishment or, or abandonment, that sense of uh, a, a skillful way of whatever. It's called vosaga, is that the word for abandonment. It's not, not a very common word in Pali, but it's uh, vosaga means that sense of, of uh, kind of open-handed relinquishment, uh, uh, sort of letting go of, of self-concern. I find a skillful way of working with a sense of being misunderstood or misrepresented as that you take note of what people are saying or how people are talking and you're patient. You recognize, well, that's not exactly true or they didn't really understand that. So perhaps there'll be a moment where an alternative view can be expressed or perhaps there won't. Or maybe there might be an opportunity to talk about it with someone else and they can pass the message back to the misunderstanding person. All that said, sometimes it's best just to leave things completely alone, particularly if there's a very strong reactivity in the heart, the kind of, but, 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 let me, let me set you straight. So, okay, that's a signal like, okay, just let them see me in that way. What, what's, what's the problem if they, they don't see me in the way that I would like? To allow yourself to be misunderstood, sometimes for years, can be very valuable. I've reflected many times on the quotation by Alan Watts, reportedly from the Analects of Confucius, Kung Fu Tzu, those who justify themselves do not convince. So that's something I've used in my habits of self-justification. Those who justify themselves do not convince. It points directly at that relaxing and opening of attitude that is so helpful. Mysteriously, or perhaps not so mysteriously, it's often the body language of openness and ease that is the best response. By not giving the signals of self-justification and indignation, one can radically change the dynamic of an exchange or an encounter, thus diminishing stress and suffering for everyone. So that the very urge to, to justify yourself, uh, that it's naturally based on self-view and and, and you know, but, but but let me explain and that the that observation by by Confucius that, that you don't convince because of that that kind of sputtering self-based um, say uh, reaction or, or way that, that the mind is relating to it and that if there's a quality of ease that and they just someone judges you in a particular way or makes some sort of comment of well, well you think such and such and go, oh, interesting, <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> never crossed my mind but if that's how you want to, 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 to judge me okay, that, that's your business and so that relaxation within us and that sense of non-reactivity you're paying attention to what someone's saying but you're not jumping in to defend yourself then it's not feeding that, that judgment or that criticism it's not 
uh, that the body language and the the attitude, the energy within us is is communicating things in a in a peaceful and skillful way, and so it can help to uh, take away the 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 energy of that judgmentalism, uh, uh, or maybe they can say, oh, oh you know that. Uh, uh, I talked about this person in this particular way, uh, but they didn't seem to react, or they seem to be quite okay with, with, um, with being seen like that. And that, that uh, so that ease or that, that peacefulness is its own response or its own con- kind of contribution to the uh, the exchange, which is what I'm, I'm saying there. Any thoughts, questions? That's something anyone's experienced. What if we're being misrepresentative, misrepresentative in a way which uh, could be harming? Like, oh, Ashton Amos said, it's okay to kill us. For example. You know. Yeah, that, that would be harmful, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, then, yeah, that would be, um, then it would be wise to check up on that. <laughs> but, uh, I heard this thing, Ajahn, that, um, that uh, you said that actually the first precept doesn't really matter. Is that correct? I said, uh, no, that, uh, you know, I would, at that point I would say that's not exactly what I said. So you don't have to be sort of a, a, um, uh, letting harm be done in, uh, on the basis of that. You know, uh, and that um, if there is uh, you know, things that are going to be genuinely sort of dis- dis- destructive or deceitful, um, then yeah, obviously, it's, it, I would well, I would say uh, use wisdom and mindfulness to, to work with that. But in it's more the in related to the sort of general judgments, like saying, you know, I'll turn you to somewhere he's really lazy because you know they they were asking for volunteers and he didn't put his hand up. But then they might say, well, they might not realise that you've actually got five other sangha jobs that you're responsible for, and you were just thinking. Well, I've got five other things I'm looking after, and I shouldn't be greedy, so I'll just let someone else volunteer for that. Oh, he, he didn't put his hand up. He's such a lazy monk, and uh, so that uh, that um, that's that kind of judgment about uh, attitudinal things. But, uh, yeah, if it's actually people are going to start behaving in in harmful, or sort of deceitful, destructive ways, then it's appropriate to speak up. You know, speaking, one of the reasons that I included, I included that in the book was a, I didn't spell it out there, but it was a particular. Um, when Abhayagiri started uh, in in nineteen ninety six, then um, uh, you know there was just two, there was like two monks and an anagarika with a resident monastic community, and there was a couple of lay people, and there was a, a hundred and uh, we had something like. Um, Nearly 250 acres of forest and land, and there was sort of half a dozen of us to to do everything, and so, and then also I was uh, I was the, sort of the teacher, and and uh, I had lots of invitations, so I was trying to do all the work around the monastery and this whole teaching um, uh, routine and traveling around and so sort of doing everything, and then after a, a few a few months I realized this is physically impossible. And uh, and living here at Amravati uh, for ten years, I got used to uh, to joining in with everything and being part of the the, the work crews and, and 
uh, whenever any physical work needed to be done, I would just sort of join in and uh, and uh, be, was very happy to do that and was always you know volunteering for for this and that and joining in with the washing up and and uh, everything you know and, and, uh, on a sort of standard regular basis. So uh, early on at Abhayagiri, I realised this is actually phys- phys- I'm keen. Uh, but this is physically impossible. I can't actually do all of this, um, and so I made a decision uh, uh, that uh, uh, also because I wanted to be kind of seen as a monk who's always ready to help out with everything, and, and uh, but I realised this is physically impossible. I can't run the administration. I can't look after the office. I can't take, do all the, all the teaching, and take care of all the communications, and be involved in all the work projects every day. I can't. It's just not doable. So I decided, okay, I'll just not uh, uh, put myself forward to help out with all of the physical work every day. I'll just leave that for the others to take care of because this other stuff has kind of got my name on. I can't, and uh, uh, I've got to look after that. So uh, what happened was that a, uh, a couple of years later, one particular, uh, he's actually an adjunct now, <laughs> so mentioning no names, so he came along, became an anagarika, became a, a novice and, and a bhikkhu, and he thought, Ajahnamara was really work shy. You know, he never shows up for anything. We're out there kind of digging the trenches and trimming the, you know, clearing the paths and building these steps, and he's just sort of writing emails in the office and doing you know, and trolling around doing all these, these talks. And you know, what, a, what a lazy monk. And so he, uh, I found this out later on. He didn't, he didn't say anything. He kind of, he was fairly... Um, restrained, <laughs> but he told me later on he had this sort of, this view that I was um, work shy and lazy, and just let all the the, the kind of the, the junior people do all the quote unquote do all the work, um, and so uh, uh, um, but I quite deliberately uh, didn't join in because I was just trying to take care of what needed to be taken care of on the, all the other side of it, and. And also, just to to work with that sense of I want to show that I'm, uh, you know, I'm keen to help out with everything to sort of show I'm a, being a good monk. And I, so I was deliberately letting myself, okay, I'm not putting that signal out. And if if people want to to think that I'm lazy, then that that's their business, which was tough for me to do, because I didn't want to be seen that way. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen as, seen as a lazy monk. But anyhow, anyhow, what I found out was that. Uh, some years later, uh, uh, about a couple of years later, we had a, 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 a big event for what's called the, the um, Life and Teaching of Ajahn Chah. And a, a number of, of, of ex-monks and, uh, and nuns, uh, uh, Zara and Tanisra, Paul Breiter, um, uh, uh, came along to have this event in the Bay Area. And so, uh, and Kirisara Tanisra were staying up at Abhayagiri, and this this a young monk was was chatting with Kirisara and he kind of dropped in some kind of comment like, well, you know, Ajahnamara, he's pretty lazy, really. You know, he just kind of likes to spend his time hanging out in the, in the office and just sort of lets the rest of us do all the work. And Kirisara said, Ajahnamara? Are you kidding? He was always, the, he was always first there on the, on the, the you know, work program, and last, first to arrive, last to finish, always clearing up after everybody. There's no way is he, he work shy. And, and so... Uh, and he was so kind of forthright in speaking up for this. And this this young monk thought, hmm, maybe I misjudge things. And, and so, uh, so he was quite affected by that uh, that that dialogue. And he'd never really asked me why I didn't 
volunteer for or wasn't involved in all the practical tasks. So after he'd had that conversation with Kitisaro, um, a, a week or two later, a few weeks later, he kind of chose a, uh, chose a convenient moment. <laughs> so, I have to confess, I've, the last two or three years I've been sending out um, critical vibes in your direction, uh, scowling at you, if not, uh, if not externally, internally, saying so can give you as kind of lazy and selfish and just letting everyone else do the work and and uh, so, uh, um, uh, but uh, you know, I understand that you know that that's that's not where you're coming from, and so, and so, uh, I just wanted to let you know I've been having these very negative, critical thoughts, and and so uh, I thought I should uh, you know ask you let let you know that I apologise, ask for forgiveness for thinking, having such negative feelings towards the critical feelings towards you, and then uh, and so he said so. Um, is there a, a reason why you you've, uh, you you know you do things as you do here at Abayagiri? And I I just told him, yeah, it's a deliberate choice on my part because I realised I couldn't do everything, and if I wasn't going to be completely run ragged and be actually available to to sort of teach and help run things, I needed to, to just not be doing everything, and so I consciously let uh, let uh, others see me in that way and to. Uh, to uh, and if I was being misunderstood or, or taken in a, in a way that was was critical, I was consciously letting myself work with that that feeling. So it turned into a great kind of dialogue between us. Oh, really? Oh, that's what was going on in your mind? Oh, wow! Never that never occurred to me. I said, Yeah, it's just I realized it was physically impossible to do everything, so I just made a choice, and so and worked with the feeling of not wanting to be looked upon in a bad way. So. He said, well, I did that part. <laughs> I served that role for you. Uh, and uh, it, it was a, it was a, a um, yeah, very helpful uh, conversation. So it was part, I mean, I didn't spell it all out there, but that was part of the, the background to that. It was a particularly clear instance of me having to work on not jumping in and saying, let me explain why I'm not <laughs> uh, out there uh, clearing, the, clearing the paths with the rest of you. Uh, uh, but just letting letting people see uh, see me in that way that they would, and not making a whole, not creating suffering around it. And so there was also a good learning lesson for that that other that other monk. So I think that's enough for this evening. Mm-hmm.